Welcome to the Cybersecurity Defenders Podcast, Episode 46. My name is Christopher Luft. I'm one of the co-founders of Lima Charlie, and I will be your host. On today's episode, we're going to be chatting with the one and only Matt Bromley about some cutting-edge intel coming out of the Lima Charlie Community Slack channel. Another week, another set of bad actors, malicious files, and compromised systems. Thanks for being here once again to talk about all the intel coming out of the Lima Charlie Community Slack channel. And as always, a huge thank you to those folks sharing information in the channel. Our little corner of the world is more informed and safer because of your efforts. And Matt, thank you for being here again to share your expertise with us. I'm happy to be here as always. And a huge reciprocal thanks again to you and as well to our intel chat, Chris. It's great having a uh, such a great resource. Our chat's been very busy lately. Community's been growing. We've had uh, quite a few folks join recently over at the community Slack, the uh, Lima Charlie community Slack. And uh, we are currently, as I'm looking at it right now, at 950 members. So I'm loving the growth. And uh, hopefully we'll see some more folks there soon. Yeah, and we'll have to do something to celebrate that thousand milestone because that's... uh, We're getting there. We're getting there. In fact, I, I think you've got some information to share. We've got an event coming up soon. Yes, yeah. Before we get into it, I just wanted to take a minute and let everybody know that Lima Charlie is hosting a virtual live event on July 19th, 2023 at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. The event is titled An Invitation to Change, Introducing the SecOps Cloud Platform. The event consists of several panels with security leaders from around the industry talking about the different applications and benefits of an environment where many solutions can exist, not just as a collection of random tools, but is a series of cybersecurity solutions designed to interoperate in an unopinionated way, where powerful systems can be put in place at incredible speeds, allowing defenders to adapt at the same speed as the threat actors. It's a really exciting event for us as it emphasizes and defines the type of future we've been working towards at Lima Charlie from day one. We would love it if you joined us, and I will leave a link to the LinkedIn live event page in the show notes. All right, let's get to the intel. First up, in May 2023, OnLab Security Emergency Response Center, or ASEC, discovered that RedEyes, also known as APT37, was distributing and using an info stealer with wiretapping features that was previously unknown, along with a backdoor developed using Golang that exploits the Ably platform. For those that may not be familiar, Ably is a platform for real-time data transfer and messaging. It is like a SaaS product that provides the backend you would need to build something like Slack. APT37 mainly carries out attacks against individuals such as North Korean defectors, human rights activists, and university professors. The threat actor uses a compiled HTML help file, or CHM file, to carry out their initial breach. I think we talked about a similar initial access technique a while back on the show. It is assumed that targets were approached via spear phishing emails with a normal password-protected document and a CHM malware disguised as a password file attached to them. In other words, By compressing a normal password-protected document with CHM malware, the threat actor led users to believe that the CHM file must be executed in order to view the password-protected document. What is the lesson here, Matt, and how would you create a defense around an attack like this? Is it simply a user education thing? Yeah, this is an interesting one. I I think that this group, so by the way, for, for anyone listening and wants a quick refresher, APT37 is, I believe, often associated with North Korean Nexus, hence the target profile that Chris described there. So this is an interesting one. I always find it interesting when you see adversaries utilize different communication vectors for their C2 communications. A lot of folks, when they think of C2, they think of like HTTP, maybe DNS, maybe HTTPS. 
These guys are using the Ably platform, uh, which I think is a unique approach. It's giving them a unique vantage point because it's potentially protocols that or communications that are hiding inside of other protocols, meaning, you know, we, we may not understand network monitoring for the Ably communication channel or whatever that might be. And by the way, I assume we're pronouncing that correctly. The only other variation I can think of is Ably. But either way, <laughs> I think that, you know, one of the ways to get around this or one of the ways to think about this is to take a look at how that protocol communicates and potentially look for that type of traffic and determine whether it's something that's legitimate inside of your environment or not. So I would point to the network as one of the first places. And, you know, there we're looking for what types of communication protocols are used in my environment versus what am I actually seeing and what's out there. You know, and just reading through some of the things that the platform is able to do, it transfers data in real time. Anyone with a channel authentication key can access a channel to receive messages. It's essentially a very, very micro lightweight chat platform, if you will. So I think, you know, identifying that type of traffic and, and looking to see what types of communications are we seeing versus what we expect would be my first route to go. Second one, I think you're right about if we make an assumption about these things arriving via spear phishing, which it looks like they obviously are, there's obviously some user education that goes into it. I would also go as far as to determine whether the running or the execution of CHM or the compiled help files is necessary in the environment. Uh, this is a little bit akin to disabling macros uh, from office documents, for example. If it's something that we don't need, then you know why have it enabled and turn it off? And that may be something else worth researching for a particular environment. Or worse comes to worse, building detections around them as well. Building detections around those CHM files. I, I looked a little bit towards kind of normal environment behavior here. If I've got 100 users and none of them have ever run a CHM file in five years of history of telemetry or whatever it might be, pretty safe to say if I spot that in the future, it's going to be something I'm going to want to dig into a little bit further. So I think understanding... You know, this is an interesting adversarial approach because they use a lot of novel things, CHM files, Ably backdoor or Ably go backdoor. And in there, they create a lot of very unique touch points that you likely don't see in a lot of environments or you don't see from a lot of threat actors. So I would look for those amongst maybe, you know, the needles in the haystack. But otherwise, other than that, you know, it's pretty straightforward, right? MSHTA execution persistence via a registry run key. I mean, these are older techniques. So some of the classic old detection should be able to find some of this type of activity as well. The C2 channel, though, the C2 comms is a really interesting approach. I'm gonna have to dig into that uh, Ably or, or Ably library a little bit further. Yeah, and I think you touched on it briefly there. Ably is a uh, Golang. And so that part of their C2 infrastructure was written in Golang, which I think is the, the second time this has come up in the last couple of weeks. So it's interesting to see how languages evolve and the longer they're around the more they start to get leveraged by threat actors is yeah no it's uh you know it's it's bound to happen we all find efficiencies in it we've seen malware written in rust before malware written in go we all find efficiencies in uh, these operating systems or these sorry and in these programming languages and adversaries do too so uh yeah you know they, they get to use it just the same we do that's i'm not going to call it the problem but it is the bittersweet side of open source or widely used or public or efficient programming languages is just like we get to write fast detections they get to write fast malware yeah and we did switch our whole back end from python to golang for a reason so i uh, can't say i blame them there we go <laughs> all right uh, another nation state actor in the feed semantics is reporting that the flea or apt 15 
has continued to focus on foreign ministries in a recent attack campaign that ran from late 2022 into early 2023, in which it leveraged a new backdoor called Graphicon. Flea has a track record of honing in on government targets, diplomatic missions, and embassies likely for intelligence-gathering purposes. Flea used a large number of tools in this campaign as well as the new Graphicon backdoor. The attackers leveraged a variety of living-off-the-land tools as well as tools that have been previously linked to Flea. Researchers observed that Graphicon samples did not have a hard-coded C2 server, rather they connected to OneDrive via the Microsoft Graph API to get the encrypted C2 server address from a child folder inside the person folder. The malware then decoded the folder name and used it as a C2 server for the malware. All instances of this variant use the same parameters to authenticate to the Microsoft Graph API. We can assume they all have the same C2, which can be dynamically changed by the threat actors. I found this super interesting given how we have been talking about the various ways in which threat actors set up their infrastructure and the dynamic nature of their command and control. This kind of advanced technique really emphasizes that detection should focus on behavior and not IOCs. Would you agree with that statement, Matt? Yeah, absolutely. This one is uh, is really, first off, APT15. Haven't heard from you in a long time. It's, it's been a little bit here. So welcome back to the party, I guess. Probably never even left. But, uh, you know, APT15 is definitely an earlier stage. I, I believe a Chinese nexus threat actor for anyone, anyone curious out there. I think this is a unique approach, but you are right on the point there, Chris, about understanding the behavior behind these things and the behavior of what the adversaries are doing rather than focusing on maybe static indicators. The biggest ploy here, obviously, is the fact that the C2 is maintained inside of a OneDrive document. That OneDrive document or documents, if you will, are accessed via the Microsoft Graph API. And it's funny, this goes right towards the previous comment that we were talking about of adversaries taking advantage of newer technologies, you know, deploying a document into OneDrive and then using the API to retrieve the contents of that document and then programmatically using those contents to establish a C2. Well, if I said programmatically using those contents to pay a bill, I could easily be talking about a financial system. It's just what I'm doing with that API and the data that's stored in my OneDrive and how I'm using it is really the indication as to whether it's malicious here or not. So for that reason, you know, I can't go into an environment and say, well, all OneDrive is bad, especially if I've got Windows environment or if we're utilizing OneDrive in there. So I can't really block that traffic. What I would instead say is I'd want to focus on the types of things that the adversaries are doing after the fact or on the system and then focus on some of those key events as well. And in looking through what they've detected or what they've determined here in this article, you know, of course, the adversary gets in and they disable the Windows 10 first run wizard and welcome page via registry keys. There's one indicator that we might go for. That's behavioral. The graph API is likely going to be inside of encrypted channels. So I might not have network visibility to that necessarily. But the different tools that get created on the file system, you know, this adversary was known to lose things like Mimi Cats, PyPyCats, Safety Cats, Sharp Sec Dump dropping of web shells, exploitation of CVE 2020-1472, which takes over NetLog on remote protocol vulnerabilities. You know, what we're seeing here is, I think, again, a really novel C2 method, maybe a novel entry vector, but at the end of the day, resorting back to kind of the same old tried and true techniques. And this is where I'd go as far as to say, make sure you've got detections for the, uh, you know, the, the tried old true things in there. And then, 
If an adversary comes up with a really, really clever C2, if there's a way for us to get around it, great. If not, we'll look for those endpoint or endpoint indicators to help determine what's good and, and what's bad, and then use that to also identify adversary activity. Yeah, never gets boring. Never. I always find some new technique in a way to go through it, but I love watching someone build out an entire backdoor complex or an entire C2 infrastructure utilizing OneDrive and Graph API to literally then just dump Mimi Cats on the system. I mean, it's just <laughs> like, it's, it's, you know where all the development went. You know where all the yeah. R&D went. It went to building yeah. out the C2. It ain't dumb if it works, right? That's right. Okay. Securinix Threat Lab has issued a security advisory around the multi-hashtag storm attack campaign involving a Python-based loader malware, which was recently seen being used to deliver Warzone rat infections using phishing emails. The attack kicks off when the user clicks on a heavily obfuscated JavaScript file contained in a password-protected zip file. In addition to the obfuscation, the JS file also contains a massive amount of padding at the end of the script using almost 600,000 zero characters, which can apparently assist in bypassing AV and binary files, or this could be an attempt to inflate the original zip file size to thwart AV analysis or brute forcing. The attack chain ends with a victim machine infected with multiple unique rat or remote access Trojan malware instances, some malware favorites such as Warzone rat and Quasar rat, both are used for command and control during different stages of the infection chain. How do we defend against something like this? And was there anything about this campaign that stood out for you, Matt? Oh my gosh. First off, the attack chain about this command is so convoluted and complex. I'm looking at it right now. It's an email to an embedded OneDrive link to a zip to a JavaScript to more OneDrive downloads to files being dropped in users' public libraries to PowerShell, to an executable, to DLLs. I mean, it is all over. The UAC bypass shows up in there. It's all over the place here about the different steps involved. And I think, you know, it's kind of like the the trend of today's episode is how many different things can I insert into an attack? I mean, first (laughs) and foremost, remember, every single one of these is a potential indicator, not just from a hash perspective, a super large JavaScript file, 500, 600,000 zeros at the end is just absolutely ridiculous. Definitely an attempt to, to likely get around some sort of automated analysis techniques or AV techniques by just being a super large file. The browser doesn't care. It'll still run them, right? One of the other things that I find interesting here, I think uh, with some of the folks I've taught forensics with and taught incident response with before, we've talked about on this podcast too, anytime something shows up in users public you should have an alert in place for when this goes on. So I think that's, you know, definitely something that can be pivoted off of and, and definitely something that can be can be looked at, if you will. The other thing that I would dig into a little bit further, a lot of PowerShell usage inside of this one, a lot of invoke web requests. I know the adversaries are trying to hide by storing their files over in OneDrive. We talked about OneDrive already, but looking for those direct PowerShell calls again. This goes back to what I'd expect to see on a system versus what I do see. I wouldn't expect a normal user or a phishing target to be issuing PowerShell commands to download files from OneDrive. So I think there's a lot of indicators in these really, really convoluted multi-step campaigns that you could go and build from a behavioral perspective. Of course, there's just the malware itself. We could obviously go and look for that. But a lot of behavioral things in here that I think could be easily observed via multiple detection techniques and then looked for from a kind of does this fit the bill of what I'm seeing versus not. But again, the 500, 600,000 zeros really threw me for a loop of 
what on earth would I be doing with this thing? And again, it's getting around AV, getting, you know, getting around automated scanning and having a file that's just way too big for anyone to do something with. Up next, another JavaScript attack vector. Deep Instinct Threat Research Lab recently noticed a new strain of a JavaScript-based dropper that is delivering Bumblebee and Iced ID. The dropper contains comments in Russian and employs a unique user agent string pinned OS, which may be a reference to current and past anti-American sentiment in Russia. Bumblebee is a malware loader first discovered in March 2022. It was associated with Conti Group and was being used as a replacement for Bizarre Loader. It acts as a primary vector for multiple types of other malware, including ransomware. Iced ID is a modular banking malware designed to steal financial information. It's been seen in the wild since at least 2017 and has recently been observed shifting some of its focus to malware delivery. How is a dropper different from other types of malware? And is it the layer in the attack stack that we see change most often as a way for evading defenses? Uh, A dropper is a piece of malware that does exactly what it's described as. Its goal is to get on the system and then be a vehicle to place other pieces of malware on the system. Uh, We've talked about these plenty of times on this podcast before. Droppers are sometimes put into those evasive categories. We've talked about dynamic code assembly. We've talked about multiple evasive techniques that you'll see. To your point about is this one of the easiest ways to evade defenses? Absolutely. It is more about... I want to set the stage for the real malware or the real C2 or the real rat or the real shell that I'm going to put on that particular system. And I might use a dropper to help me set that stage. The dropper might be the one that comes in, disables AV or disables certain things, um, implements persistence mechanisms, tests the waters, if you will, to see what sticks and what doesn't, and to gain some insight into that particular system and say, can I even deploy the shell that I am looking to deploy or deploy my, my real malware? Uh, We've talked about this multiple times, but I might have a dropper for Cobalt Strike, for example, or Sliver or some other C2 framework. The dropper is a very integral part because it's, again, there to kind of test it out. Can I drop this thing? Will it work? Will it run? Do I have the right architecture? It might also be the one who is capturing all those details. So my dropper might be the one that comes back and says, hey, this is Windows 10 64-bit in this country, this IP address and whatnot. And that's why you'll see these uh, IP exclusions or these language packs or these comments in particular languages because it's given us an idea of who's writing it and what they're going after. So really interesting one. The thing I found most interesting about this is this article. Great props over to this team, by the way. They did a really nice comparison of before and after where they talked about Bumblebee's infection flows, the older and the newer one. And what we see in this case is a movement from a zip or an ISO running PowerShell to a DLL, to this case running a JavaScript file dropping a DLL that subsequently is written to a templates folder and then executed using run DLL32, which is very typical post-exploitation behavior. We see that in nearly every exploit kit that's out there. But my point is that, you know, some changes to the malware, obviously you do get some pseudo random sample generation which does lower the risk of detection because we're not sending the same piece of malware out again and again and again. But, you know, time will tell to see if we've got a full-blown attempt here or if this is just an experiment. This article does call this out as being a little bit of an experiment, especially the, the pinned or pined OS. I'm not sure exactly how to say that in the Russian derogatory slang. But nonetheless, uh, the dropper is likely going to be, you know, is a key key part of the stack. And I think we'll probably see campaigns use these exact sequence of events in the future. 
when we talk about access brokers, this would be the kind of software that they would be selling as a service then. Yeah, this would be what those access brokers would maybe use to gain the access that they would that then they would subsequently sell. Rapid7 researchers recently undertook a project to analyze managed file transfer applications due to the number of recent vulnerabilities discovered in these types of applications. The most notable analogous software I think of is the MoveIt file transfer software, which has been all over the news recently. The researchers chose Fortra GlobalScape EFT as a target since it's reasonably popular and seemed complex enough to have some bugs. It is also owned by a company called Go Anywhere, which was exploited by the Klopp ransomware group earlier this year, which I believe we covered on this podcast. And to no surprise, the Rapid7 researchers identified several CVEs, which include code execution, privilege escalation, and some other bits of nastiness. All the CVEs are explained in depth in the article, which will be linked in the show notes. Matt, why am I not surprised? And is there anything organizations can do to make sure that key pieces of software like this are safe? Yeah, we're not surprised because we just came out of this happening. We just had to deal with this where we've got a vulnerable file transfer piece of software. And unfortunately, it caused quite a havoc for a lot of folks here. You know, I, I first off, I, I've said it before multiple times. I, I don't necessarily point fingers or lay the blame at the software developers. Um, you know, a software testing company or a vulnerability company like Rapid7 testing a piece of software and finding vulnerabilities is great. It's great for all of us because it tells the company, hey, you've got some things you need to fix and some things you need to work on. So, of course, you know, I would I would obviously go the route of if there's any vulnerabilities that have been discovered that were intently put there as a result of someone's negligence or whatever, obviously we don't want to be in those situations. But if it's simply just they utilize the code base and someone was able to identify some vulnerabilities in the network transport layer or the way the software handled a thing or, you know, various sorts of data type parsing or whatever it might have been, well, then go patch it and fix it and we'll move on, right? The goal is that companies like Fortra GlobalScape are taking steps to potentially patch and repair and test their software. Uh, I won't speak for any vendor out there, but I'll say if you are publishing or pushing enterprise level software, know that your software is going to be a target and do your best to test and patch accordingly and just stand by your users if they fall into a, a trap or anything like that. But that being said, the enterprise user has to demand that the vendor that they sign up with or that they use is, uh, you know, testing their software and providing patches and updates. Then the other thing that the enterprise can do is also update when those patches come through. You know, uh, the blame does shift very quickly when you have a vendor who is on top of making repairs and fixing their software, and then you have a customer of theirs who refuses to patch or does so so late that the vulnerabilities are then out there. Not sitting here pointing the fingers at everyone intentionally, just saying there are steps on both sides that can be done. It's funny, I was just researching the SolarWinds attack, and the people that got hurt the most by that were the ones that did the patches the quickest. Because, of course, it was a supply chain attack. So they, by patching quickly, they actually introduced that vulnerability into their ecosystem. And that's it. <laughs> so yeah, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. Right? I know. It goes, it goes both ways. It's, it's kind of depending on where the adversary sits in that whole life cycle. It, uh, it, it depends on you know, how much access they've got and how they're pushing those, those, those different vulnerabilities out there. But that is, you know, there's definitely a tipping point. Where, you know, if one's vulnerable, are we all vulnerable? 
right? I think Solar Winds was a little bit of a of an interesting classification because everyone who was a customer and received a particular update since you know eight months previous was vulnerable because it was they were embedded in such a level. So at that point, there was no you know, oh, well, I have that old version, so I'm not, so, you know, I, I don't fall victim to this or that. It was kind of like if you had passed in the past almost year, you were suspected to this. And I would say, you know, in that case, again, do what the company can to kind of stand by and, and have them make as many repairs as they can and just watch out for changes that they made. You know, Solar Ones was very much on top of pushing changes when they could. And of course, we all know just how that attack unfolded. And exactly what came of it. But that being said, you know, do your best to stay on top of the software and reach out to your vendors if you have any questions. Yeah. And I, I think in, in the research I did, I read a quote from Kevin Mandia that said that uh, he figured there was a thousand threat actors, at least who on the engineering side who worked on that. So not your run of the mill kind of stuff you're going to see that sort of the kind of thing you can't even defend against in a way. Very interesting stats on just what it takes to execute that kind of attack. All right. The last one today is a novel one, if not a fun one. The Department of the Army Criminal Investigation Division has issued an alert. Apparently, service members across the military have reported receiving smartwatches unsolicited in the mail. These smartwatches, when used, auto-connect to Wi-Fi and began connecting to cell phones unprompted, gaining access to a myriad of user data. These smartwatches may also contain malware that would grant the sender access to save data which could include banking information, contacts, and account information, such as usernames and passwords. Malware may be present, which accesses both voice and cameras, enabling actors access to conversations and accounts tied to these smartwatches. It's a really interesting attack, if that's what it actually is, which, you know, the fact that they're all military members definitely throws up some flags. And it kind of reminds me of that famous example of leaving some infected thumb drives around the parking lot of a target organization. People just love stuff and can't help themselves. Have you heard of anything like this before, Matt? Yeah, so that's the first thing that my mind went to when I heard this as well was leaving infected thumb drives to see if someone would plug in, plug them in and, and launch your malware or anything like that. I can't say I've heard of this exact type of thing happening before, but it doesn't surprise me that someone will go after pretty much any mechanism they can. I mean, if we go high enough level out, if we zoom high enough out, Chris, we're thinking about an electronic device that when turned on automatically does a thing. And if I can put a piece of malware or a malicious connection or an info stealer or force someone to join my Wi-Fi or join my network or something like that, then yeah, obviously it's going to be a target and someone's going to find a way to abuse it. And I think that's what we've got in this case is someone was like, ooh, maybe I can get a bunch of military folks to accept my free quote unquote watches and, you know, connect to networks and I'll have access to everything they've got. And boom, there we go. Uh, I do like the fact that there was an advisory put out about it. I don't know how successful this type of attack was. But what I do find interesting is, of course, what can be the follow-up step? Uh, you know, the smartwatches do get connected to phones. They get given certain levels of trust and permission, especially if they're configured to display all sorts of information on the watch. And then to see that that might, in, you know, uh, might be abused or might be misused by a threat actor. That's obviously the real risk. So the target audience makes sense. Folks with access to sensitive or classified information, the way that they're going about it, dropping smart devices in or acting like, hey, you've won a prize or something like that. Again, not a novel, unique feature. We've seen that happen plenty of times before. And in that particular case, I would say 
If you're in an environment where you receive a free electronic device and you have no idea how it got there, for the please, please, please do not plug that thing in. <laughs> yeah. Do you think there's any cause for organizations to restrict users from having these kind of smart devices, let alone if they come free in the mail? So I think that there's got to be some user education around them, depending on how the company or how the organization or how the you know network feels about these devices and stuff. I will say military, or at least from a U.S. military perspective, you know, you get into the concept of military skiffs and sensitive environments and things like that, where these types of devices are not allowed to be there. So, of course, that could speak to a wider policy of say, hey, if you spend most of your day in a skiff, you can't wear it anyways. So, you know, just don't. Right. There was a story a long time ago about fitness tracking devices being used to identify and map U.S. military bases around the world by tracking people's fitness activities. So in cases like that, where you're trying to protect operational security, I could certainly see a case for it. For the average enterprise user, though, as someone who is a smartwatch owner myself, I don't really have anything come across the screen that I would consider sensitive or particularly damning if someone were to, you know, eavesdrop and see it. But of course, I configure my notifications as such. So what I would say is I wouldn't ban users from using them. I would just say if you're nervous about sensitive data traversing those screens, then go ahead and implement different types of guidelines or best practices for your users and just say, hey, here you go. Here's what you can enable and disable. And this will you know, put your device in kind of a corporate accepted policy. But telling folks what they can and can't wear is, is a strategy I'd probably stay away from only because they're very integral to kind of how we function in our daily lives. We want to make sure we have those types of devices accessible. And I will admit I'm very biased in that answer because I love my smartwatch and I definitely want to keep that thing on. So I'm going to say let's find a way to be successful with it as, a, as opposed to turning it off. That's right. And security's here to support business. And if that means supporting the highly talented folks who want to be happy in their jobs, That's you right. do what you got to do. That's our job. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Okay, Matt, this was a fun one. Uh, thanks again for coming out. I'm sure we'll have lots more interesting stuff to talk about next week. As always, thanks again, Chris. And thanks to our Intel channel. Love reporting on some of the great stuff you share with us. Cheers. Bye. And that concludes episode number 46 of the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast. If you have any feedback or ideas for future topics, please send an email to defenders at limacharlie.io. You can access the intel we talk about on the show in real time and join the conversation on the Lima Charlie community Slack channel at slack.limacharlie.io. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with someone or leaving a rating or review. And don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening from. Thanks for listening in. We'll see you on the next episode.